Thank you very much for, uh, for being here today and for uh, being interested um, in, in this. Um, I thought what I would start is doing is just reading you a small section um, from, from the novel. Um, the, the piece I have chosen to read, I will uh, just forewarn you, has a little bit of language in it. Well, maybe more than just a little bit. Um, so uh, just, just be aware of that. Um, the novel is about a, uh, a young preacher who comes to a small town in Kentucky, um, a fictional town, um, and he's, he's come there to revive a dying church. Um, and some of the things he does over the 12 years he's in this small town um, makes people very happy, and they, they seem to follow along with what he does, and, and other people are not so happy with what he does. Um, when I wrote the novel, I was interested in exploring the idea of perspective uh, and perception. Um, you know, I'm, I am who I am, but how people perceive me has a lot to do with their experience with me um, and, and our experiences together. It also has a lot to do with their own background and how they might um, perceive individuals. So I was really interested in exploring that. So if you pick up a copy of Blessed, uh, you will see that the very first sentence of the novel, the main character, uh, has just died. Um, so his story and what he does over the 12 years that he's in Mercy, Kentucky, uh, is told through the people that he has encountered along the way um, while he's there, including uh, members of his own family. Um, the novel, I call it Blessed. Uh, it doesn't bother me whether people call it blessed or blessed. Um, I call it Blessed because the, the novel is structured in such a way that it has uh, five sections in it, and those sections are um, based on or use the Beatitudes as the founding, the, the section titles. So, um, so the first section is blessed are those who hunger and thirst. So that's why I, I tend to call it blessed, just because it's, it's part of it. It's kind of based off the Beatitudes. Um, and there are about six central characters that are in each section that, that um, tell overall Grayson's story, um, and then a few other characters that pop up along the way. Um, so one of the things that Grayson does when he first comes to Mercy, Kentucky, is he's really interested in the homeless population there and um, begins to um, befriend several of the, uh, the men um, who are homeless in the, in the community. And uh, one of the, the gentlemen that he becomes very uh, attached to is uh, named Hank. And um, Hank uh, is, has been homeless for quite some time. Um, and, and Grayson comes to find out that, um, that Hank suffers from PTSD having served in the Vietnam War. And that's part of, of Hank's issues. So um, this is Hank talking, what I'm going to be reading from you is, is Hank talking, um, and this is in the Blessed Are the Persecuted section. I set up my temporary home behind an abandoned house by stringing up an old painter's tarp I'd found in the trash. I knew it was temporary because eventually someone would find me there and call the cops. But ever since the vagrancy laws were passed, people get uptight when one of us hangs around too long so I never get too attached to any one place. Still, I hoped this one would, be, would last longer because 
It felt secluded in the back corner of that lot, just the way I liked it. No one prying into my business or stealing my stuff, not that there's much to steal. You don't choose to be homeless, at least not the first time, maybe not even the second or third time. But when you spend the better part of your adult life in one makeshift home or another, you come to realize that it's a choice. Maybe not a conscious one, but one that's the result of all the other choices you made and keep making, knowing full well that they'll only leave you without a home or family or friends. There's a strange comfort, though, in knowing that there's nothing left to lose. I knew I could flip off the world and no one gave a damn, except the reverend. Even when I couldn't hang on to my job after I'd left the halfway house, and even after I lost the next one six months later, he was still there. No matter how fucked up I was, he kept showing up trying to pour hope back into my life. I guess he couldn't see the tiny holes filling my insides that kept letting hope, the hope ooze back out. It wasn't really a surprise when he showed up on that summer afternoon, even though I'd gone out of my way to avoid him. I'd been miserable for days as the temperatures and humidity climbed, the dog days of summer, I think they call it. I tried everything I could to find relief, including sneaking into that old house through a loose board on, in the back, but the heat just baked in mold and piss in, in that closed up space so that the smell was unbearable. So I ended up spending a lot of time under the shade of the trees in my makeshift tent and fanning myself every now and then with a piece of cardboard. That afternoon, I'd fallen asleep, stretched out on the top of the old sleeping bag the Reverend had given me. I guess I was in a deep sleep because I didn't hear him come into the yard. It was the sound of an old can hitting against the broken concrete patio that woke me up. What the? I sprang to my feet. Reverend, you scared the hell out of me. Sorry, man. I called your name a couple of times. You were sleeping pretty sound. Yeah, well, I don't get much sleep at night. Still having those nightmares? Sometimes. I really didn't want to talk about it. Actually, I was tired of talking about it. I had been avoiding him for weeks, so I wouldn't have to talk about it. How the hell did you find me anyway? Someone at the food pantry said they saw you in this area, so I thought I'd come to see if I could find you. I haven't, been, haven't seen you in a while, and I was worried. You left the motel without saying a word, and you stopped showing up at your job. Look, Reverend, I appreciate your concern, but I don't need a damn babysitter. It sounded ungrateful. It probably was. He had paid for the motel and had vouched for me so I could get that job at the hardware store. That's exactly the reason I'd been avoiding him. He'd want to know why I walked out on him and left my sobriety in the dust. It wasn't easy to explain. Hell, I'm not sure it made sense to me. I just know that one morning I looked in the mirror and I didn't recognize the man looking back. He was clean-shaven with hair that was washed and combed. But he wasn't real. I could see it in his eyes. They were hollow because the real man inside was hollow, com completely empty, no heart, no passion, no soul. Those had been stripped from him years ago. So I left him, that phony plastic man behind. Living on the streets is hard, but I know at least it's real, that I'm real. I'm not trying to babysit you, Hank. I just want to make sure you're okay, that's all, especially in this heat. 
Brought you some water. He set down several bottles onto the sleeping bag. I'll never be okay. You should know that by now. I don't believe that. I don't care what the hell you believe. Just leave me alone. I expected him to go, but he just stood there like a fucking idiot. Didn't you hear me? I told you to get the fuck out of here. I shoved him and he stumbled backward, and then, but then caught his balance. He looked like a wounded bird, which made me hate him all the more. Just as he turned to go, I heard several loud pops that sounded like gunfire. Get down, Robbie, I screamed as I pushed him to the ground and then threw myself on top of him. Damn, Viet Cong, I whispered. My heart was beating fast and I could barely catch my breath. It's okay, Hank, it's okay. We're in mercy, remember? That was only some firecrackers. Somebody just starting their 4th of July celebrations a little early. 4th of July, I said. I looked down and saw the reverend staring wild-eyed at me. I raised up off of him and fell back onto my ass. I forgot it was the 4th, I said, still a little dazed. Those fireworks will be going off all night, he said as he sat up. Are you sure you're going to be all right? No, but nothing's going to change that, is it? Just go. He stared at me as if trying to see if I was serious. Please go, I whispered. Why don't you just pretend that I never existed? We'll both be happier if you do. He shook his head, but got up, got up anyway to leave. Only when he reached the broken gate did he turn back for one final look before disappearing beyond the overgrown hedges. I sat there for a good long while. The sun was hanging low in the sky and it was hot as hell. Beads of sweat formed on my forehead and rolled down my back, but I didn't move. I kept thinking about Robbie. God, he was such a good kid. He could make me laugh until I snorted, which would make us both laugh that much harder. He was so naive about the war. Hell, we both were. All through basic training and even through our first days in country, we were having fun playing soldier in our olive green field jackets and helmets. But then we saw old women and children and mothers clutching babies fleeing out burn, burned out villages. We saw the bodies of soldiers, theirs and ours, scattered around, turning green fields red. We saw things no human should ever see. We didn't talk about it. No words could ever capture the burden of those images. And even though we could, could see it in each other's eyes, we laughed our way through it. As if by instinct, we knew that our laughter was the only barrier between us and insanity. <clears throat> but then Robbie died, and there was nothing left to keep me grounded. My brother took me to D.C. several years ago to see the memorial. I searched the catalog at the end of the wall until I found his name, and then Doug helped me locate the right panel. There it was, Robert J. Webster. I reached out and touched the letters etched into the stone like if by magic he would step out of that stone and hole and laugh at my gullibility for believing he was dead. But he was dead. And his forever youthful grin was faded, forced to fade back into the haze of my memory. Doug helped me rub his name onto a paper which I kept for a long time. I was upset when I lost it, but it was only on a name on a paper. It would never, ever be him. Robbie would have liked the Reverend, I thought. If things had been different, I could imagine the three of us sitting down with some beer and discussing the finer points of, points of philosophy or debating the best kind of music. Robbie would act silly until he had me snorting and the Reverend in tears because he was laughing so hard. But Robbie was gone and dredging up his ghost always took one more piece of me and left me gasping for air. 
Finally, in the, glowing, in the growing darkness, I crawled back to the shelter of the tarp. I hadn't eaten since early that morning, so I fumbled around in my backpack for the peanut butter and crackers I'd gotten from the food pantry. I f my hand felt the smooth whiskey bottle and lingered on it before moving, finally moving on. You, you need to eat, I told myself. But the fireworks began popping all around. Every whistling rocket, every loud explosion settled into my bones until I trembled with panic. I found the bottle again and took a big sip. I let the warmth of it fill the emptiness. Before I drifted off to sleep, I was still thinking of Robbie, but it was the Reverend's face that came to me in my dreams. So, I am happy to answer any questions that you might have. They are not. Um, I have uh, volunteered at a local food pantry for a number of years, and so um, it's kind of a composite. In, in some cases, some of the some of the characters are kind of a composite of some of the people I'm, I've encountered um, through the years of doing that. Um, we have a strong veterans program as part of our food pantry, um, and I, I've listened to some of them tell a little bit of their stories. Um, none of them are Hank, but, uh, but it kind of helped to uh, bring some flesh to those characters. So which characters based on different beatitudes? It's, they're not based on different beatitudes. Um, I just chose to um, use the beatitude to, to create sections in the novel. Um, so the characters rotate through all the sections. Um, but what I wanted to try to do was, with, with using the Beatitudes, is um, to explore the idea of persecution from multiple perspectives again. Um, the idea of hungering and thirsting and what people are hungering and thirsting for. Um, the, the novel ends with the blessed are those who mourn, um, which obviously comes back to, uh, to, his, to the main character's death. <laughs> I hope so. Uh, well, I, I guess to begin with, I didn't set out to write a Christian novel, uh, which is kind of strange because the main character is a preacher and it's, it's centered around the Beatitudes. It, it is, well, and a lot of the reviewers have, have kind of um, identified it as that. And it doesn't bother me that it's identified like that. It has a lot of very Christian themes in the book. Um, but I really was more interested in, in exploring the idea of perspective. Um, it, the idea generated many years ago when we had a situation in our church in which um, the, there were some people who really liked what the pastor was doing and some people who really didn't, and we saw the pastor very, very differently. So I think that was one of the key things that, one of the reasons why I, I centered the story about a pastor. Um, and then the, uh, 
I, my, I did my dissertation on Lee Smith, um, contemporary Southern writer, um, and, and several of her, her novels have preachers in them. And, and she, she talked about how the preachers, a preacher tends to be a central figure in a, in a town. So it also made sense to do the preacher. Um, so, so I didn't really set out to write a Christian novel. And for that reason, it, it was important for me for the characters to speak authentically. And, and for that particular character, and he's really the only one who uses that kind of language. Uh, I think I've got one other character who might use, um, she doesn't use the F word, um, but she, she might use a word or two, but not nearly to the degree that that character does. But for me, in that particular character, it was so important uh, for his experience that that is how he would speak. Yeah. Yeah. And to me, it was important. If I was going to look at perspective, I really needed to, to see characters from really, you know, different walks of life and different experiences. And, um, and so it was really important for me uh, to, uh, to do that. I don't use that kind of language myself. Um, so it's, it's really kind of interesting to, um, to read it. My <laughs> My husband says I, 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 I sound a little too natural <laughs> when I read it, I think. Um, but I suspect people who use that language a lot may also take issue with it because I probably don't use it quite in the same way that people who use it commonly use it. Um, I'm, I'm probably just a little bit off <laughs> in the way it's used. Oh, good, good. Well, you know, and it, uh, anymore, it's, it's hard to be anywhere and not hear the, the language anywhere. But, yeah, it is. It is. It, and interestingly enough, I used the F word in that book as well. Again, only one character. Well, I take that back. Um, it is used. It's 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 kind of um, used by by another character speaking in the in the word before. Interestingly enough, in that book and in that in my first novel it is about seven women um, who've lived in in a particular house over its two hundred year history. Um, and in that case, I, when I was a, a, a young, uh, a teenager, I babysat for a family. In, I grew up in Lexington. I babysat for a family that lived in an old house that was built around the original log cabin. And I was, um, and they had had, the, they, in the living room, they had exposed um, the, the logs from the, the original log cabin. And I was fascinated by that house. And so um, I was really interested in writing a story about a number of, uh, you know, who might have lived in the house. And so there are, in, in that novel, there are only two of the women are actually related to each other um, because I didn't want to write a family saga. So they just happen to be women who have lived in that house over, over its 200 year history. And, um, and, so, and so it goes genera generationally through that. Um, but again, and, and those are all first person narratives. Um, so it was important for me there to, to get both the, the, the tenor of how they would write or speak during that time period, but also their experiences, and in, in some cases as it gets further along in that, to the language that they use. Um, and so, uh, so one of the, the final characters there does 
to make her voice more authentic. Um, but interestingly enough, the second character in that novel is a former slave. Um, and she is now living, it, it's, it's, she's been freed uh, by the time she is writing her story down. Um, but, and she's living in the house now as a housekeeper um, and a kind of a nanny. Um, and in her telling her story, I use the N-word. And I'm more, I, I, that bothers me, using the N-word bothers me more than using the F-word. Um, and and I've, I've struggled more with that um, than I have any other thing I've put down on, on paper. And I use it in a way that hopefully a reader would see it and it's not, you know, that it's, it's coming out of the mouth from somebody who is not a good person. Um, but it still bothers me that that word is in there. Yeah, it, it is, it is, it is very sad to say, um, and, um, and so, but, but it, it's just, it's interesting because like I said, I don't use any of that language, but it, it but I struggled more with that, um, than I did any, any swear word. I did, I, I did two, two summers, um, I did the Heinemann Settlement Schools Appalachian Writers Workshop um, in Knott County, and um, it just so happened that both summer, because I did it back-to-back -back summers, and both summers Silas House was the uh, mentor for fiction. And so that's, I developed um, a, a relationship with him um, over the course of that. And in fact, um, Silas obviously is a very, very, very busy individual, um, but, um, he, you know, he. I was working on my first novel when when uh, I was doing the, the Heinemann Settlement School uh, workshop, and uh, my publisher for this book, because I self-published my first book um, in 2009, and um, and Silas House and Lee Smith both wrote um, um, praise for the for the novel. They had read read parts of it, um, but. The publisher for this novel is going to re-release the first novel next year, and Silas is has agreed to write a forward for it. So um, we're we're hoping that that he can. I mean, he has agreed to do it, but uh, uh, he is he's phenomenal and a great mentor. I do not. I I haven't uh, been in the classroom in, in about eleven years. Yeah. Uh, I live in Richmond. Yeah. I wish um, I was just saying. I was just saying that uh, my my plan is to retire in May of next year, and so I'm hoping that maybe I will have an opportunity to lock myself in a room somewhere and, and write. Um, but I had actually been this idea had been running around in my head for a number of years, um, probably seven or eight years, 
ago is when I first kind of, I came up with the idea. I ended up writing about 15, 20 pages of it. Um, and then it sat for a long, long time. And, uh, and I happen to work with somebody who does some creative writing as well. Um, she and I kind of would share things. And so she knew I had that one going. I also had another novel going. And so when I, I got the energy to, to work again on a novel, I said, which one to, to go with? And she said, the one about the preacher. And I said, okay. So about that time, I was working with uh, Virginia Underwood, the, the publisher at, at Shadeland House, uh, who had worked at EKU uh, for a while. So I knew Virginia from, from working. Um, our, her offices were, were just down the hall from each other. And she had read my first book. And so, and she had, when she started her press in 2016, she had contacted me and had asked me to do a couple of book reviews for her website, um, which I did. Uh, and and uh, the first two books that, that she, her press released were um, nonfiction, true crime stuff. And so I thought, well, that's, you know, that's kind of the direction she's going. Didn't think anything about it. And then I saw she was releasing a book, book of poetry. And then shortly after that, she announced that she was releasing another book of poetry. And I, Hmm, it's interesting. So I, it really is. And I, and I, so I sent her an email and I said, are you ever going to consider doing fiction? And she said, as a matter of fact, I am. Do you have anything? And at that point I had 15 or 20 pages of this novel. So I, she said, send me what you've got. And I did. And, and so she, after she read it, she said, I want to publish it, which meant then I had to write it. <laughs> so, which is always a good uh, motivator to get, to get something done. Uh, I, I tend to work better that way anyway. Um, so at that, at that time, then, I kind of buckled down. Uh, I write a little bit differently than some writers that I know. Um, I, I, some of my, my friends who are writers uh, or that I've, I've read uh, interviews of, of writers will talk about how they, you know, they work and they'll write, they'll commit to write 1,000 words a day or 5,000 words a, a day or a week. And then they'll, they'll just get something down on paper. It does, you know, the, the goal is to get something down, and then they go back and they revise and they revise and they revise. Um, and I just can't write that way. Um, I I have to write very methodically and linearly. So I will write, um, and then I will. I have been working the last three or four weeks um, on the first chapter of the next novel. And I've got four pages done. But they're getting to be very, very clean pages and will probably be very close to what the, the final will be because that's just the way I write. And because for me, writing is discovery. And I, as I write, I discover things. Um, I had the best experience when I was working on my dissertation. I had an opportunity to interview Lee Smith. And um, we were talking about one of her novels and she was, she was talking about the ending of the novel, which is, is kind of, or, or one, one piece of the, the novel. And she said, well, I didn't, you know, I didn't know she, the, the main character was going to do that. I thought she was going to do this. And the next thing I know, she was just off doing this. And I'm sitting there thinking, wait a second. You wrote the story. How did you not know? Yeah. How did you not know? Um, and then I wrote my first book. And I went, and I had that kind of experience, where it, where I thought this was going to happen, and then the next thing I know, 
something else. We were talking a little bit beforehand about writing historical fiction, which um, the first novel really delves a lot into history. And, and so it happened when I was working on The, the Former Slave, and I was writing a lot, I was reading a lot of, of uh, books about the, the Reconstruction period and, and um, what was happening to slaves in the, in the uh, Reconstruction period. Um, and so I, I, I wanted, there were, there were good reunions and, 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 and not so good reunions that were happening uh, during that time period. And I wanted so bad for the character to have a, a good reunion with the family member and, and it didn't um, happen and, and it just, it, it was as if something else was taking over when I was writing that. So it was a really interesting experience as a writer to just have that have that happen. For me, it's the writing. Um, the research, f for me, and, and you know, you can get bogged down in the research, and you can find interesting things. I didn't know until I was doing research on that time period, and uh, I, w I went to the Lexington Public Library uh, because the first novel is set in Lexington and I was doing some research. I didn't know that there was a group of 300 freed slaves that left Lexington and went to Nicodemus, Kansas and, and created a settlement of former slaves in Nicodemus, Kansas. And there's actually a national uh, historical site in Nicodemus now uh, for this site. But I didn't know that until I was researching. So I felt compelled to put that in, in the book because these these former slaves were leaving from Lexington. It only made sense to put that. But I didn't, you know, that wasn't the core of the story. So it's just lightly mentioned there. Um, so that's the, the hard part about researching is, is not feeling like every little detail that you find yeah. is something that you, that you. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, no, there are, um, because again, it, the idea of, of thinking about perspective, um, it was important for me to have characters who were very upset with what he was doing. And, and there's one key character that threads through the novel that is, because uh, uh, like I said, the, the main character is coming in to revive a dying church, but it's not dead. And so there are, there are members of the church who've been members for a long, long time. and he comes in and he changes a bunch of things that, that they hold very near and dear. And so it's, um, so they, they are very uncomfortable with what he's doing and feel it's very destructive. So um, 
so their, their stories, uh, the, the way they perceive him is, is not positive at all. Um, and uh, he struggles, one of the characters that, that um, is, is one of the, the main voices is his son, who's seven when they first arrive in Mercy and 19 by the time the novel ends. Um, and um, they have a tumultuous relationship anyway, um, but uh, toward the end of the novel, um, it be, well, you find out, the reader finds out early on in the novel, but um, uh, it's, it's really toward the end of the novel that, that you find out his son is gay. Um, and so there's that, that kind of um, push and pull that, that tends to happen uh, when that issue uh, comes up. And so, um, so his son, his own son, struggles a bit with his relationship with his father. Um, and it's, it's, it's both in terms of that as well as, um, uh, you know, preacher's kids tend to have a, a hard road yeah. to hoe anyway. And, and, you know, the expectations that are on any preacher and, and his family uh, or her family. Um, and so, it, it, you know, so even his family sometimes struggles a little bit with who he is. So some of them have very positive experiences with him and some of them don't. Um, I, my, my goal in writing it was to try to not influence the reader and to which way to feel about the main character. Um, I really wanted the reader to kind of feel both ways because that's who we are as human beings. I mean, we're, we're all flawed individuals um, and people, you know, sometimes we, you know, even, even the best of us sometimes do things that are not good uh, for other people.